Well, thank you for reassembling so promptly. Um, we are delighted to have as our keynote speaker this afternoon, uh, Professor Elizabeth Barthelot of Harvard Law School. Um, she is the Morris Wasserstein uh, Public Interest Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Child Advocacy Program, which she founded in the fall of 2004. Uh, she teaches civil rights and family law, specializing in child welfare, adoption, and reproductive technology. Uh, before joining the Harvard faculty, she was engaged in civil rights and public interest work. Um, please forgive me for what I said about that. Um, first with the NAACP... <laughs> First with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, and later with uh, found, as founder and director of the Legal Action Center. Um, she is very well known for her work uh, both on employment discrimination law, where I have used her as a source, and uh, more recently for her brilliant writing on uh, college disciplinary proceedings and uh, Title IX. Um, it is her first time at Cato, and I hope you will all join me in giving a warm welcome to Professor Elizabeth Barthelot. So um, thank you. Is there any way to get these down a little? If anybody's in charge of these lights, it would be great. Um, thank you, Walter. Um, I'm very grateful for the invitation to come to Cato. And, um, and I'm particularly grateful because I think the topic that I'm mostly going to focus on, international adoption, is really important and really in need of allies. Um, I will also say that in terms of my approach to social change work, that although I do believe in litigation as a method of change, I've moved more and more away from it uh, in terms of thinking uh, how important work outside of the courtroom uh, is in terms of accomplishing social change. Uh, I want to start talking about what I see as the major adoption problem, both domestic and international, um, and then focus in on international adoption and uh, uh, my call for action. So in terms of the adoption problem, I think it's essentially um, the failure to provide more nurturing homes to kids who need nurturing homes, um, when those homes are available, when there are plenty of people out there to offer those homes. So I think in terms of thinking why we have this problem, I think there's uh, a central bias at the heart of this problem. And the bias has to do with thinking that children belong where they came from, that where they came from defines who they are. And I think there are two senses of belonging that I, uh, are unduly common, I take issue with. So one is that they belong in the sense that parents and nations own them. People are unembarrassed about talking uh, about children as precious resources belonging to nations in this world. Um, and the other sense of belonging that I take issue with is that children belong in the sense that where they came from, birth parents, the nation and cultural group, and religious group of origin, is where they will be able to flourish. And they won't be able to flourish elsewhere. So I say no to what I call bias. Um, I think kids should not be seen as resources or property. They are human beings that should be seen as having personhood, not being property, 
and having fundamental human rights, just like adults do, even if they can't exercise those rights in the same way. They, in fact, depend on us, on adults, to affirm their human rights. And I think in terms of children flourishing, what they most need to flourish is loving parenting from as early in life as possible. And I think all the evidence indicates it doesn't particularly matter whether that parenting uh, comes from the birth parent or from a parent in the nation of origin. So I think there's a lot of absurd romanticism surrounding, surrounding birth origins. Um, I think one, for example, is the idea that children should be seen, again, as precious resources in the sense that they will enrich the country of origin if we only keep them in that country. Not true. Children growing up in institutions, many of them are going to die, a significant portion. Those that live are not overall going to enrich the country. They are the children that are going to come out and be subject to sex and other forms of slavery, to drug addiction, to crime. Overwhelmingly, statistically, that's the case. Um, I think it's similarly absurd to think that for children, biology is always best, and we hear that constantly. Um, Children are always best uh, if kept with the birth parent, even if there's a significant amount of abuse and neglect. Not true. Children born, as so many are today, drug-affected, are not usually best off if returned, as most of them are, to be brought up by parents still in the grip of drug addiction. They are very unlikely to do well in that situation. Um, they're, they're likely to do extremely well if removed immediately um, and raised in nurturing families. Foster limbo, and there's going to be a panel later which is going to address some of the foster care issues. Children in um, foster care who are bouncing back and forth to the biological family because of the priority given to keeping kids with their birth parents are not better off because of that societal solution. Um, so, particular, more specific problems with adoption policy. In general, adoption policy reflects the bias I've just talked about. So adoption policy is almost entirely focused on the bad things that might happen if children are transferred from the family, the country of origin, to another family, to another country. For the most part, that transfer actually works well for children. But adoption policy focuses on what might go wrong, not what might go right. So it's all set up to restrict, over and over to restrict. The solution, um, largely, is to get government out of the way, because government, for the most part, is the entity, both national governments, our government, other governments. It's government that is, to a great degree, standing in the way of kids who are in need of parenting and the parents who want to provide it. Now, as somebody who's been involved in social reform, attempts at social reform on all my life, and there were a couple of decades before I got involved in the child welfare area. 
One of the great things about this area and adoption policy and the potential for adoption reform is that getting government out of the way is one of the major solutions. We're not talking about something that requires enormous input of government resources. Of course, there needs to be some facilitative government action. But long term, the expenses are paid for by private people, not by the government. So I want to focus now on international adoption. And I've spent a lot of the last few decades focused on policy in this area. Um, sadly, from my point of view, I got into this work because I, um, the good part, not sad, is that I adopted two children from Peru um, some 30 years ago. However, it was the difficulties of adoption at that point that, that triggered my entry into this field because I thought there are way too many restrictions. And all that's happened in the last 30 years um, is that we've increased the restrictions. We've made it more difficult. We've made it harder for kids who clearly have no other alternative but for adoption to be, become adopted. So we need to do something uh, more maybe different from the kind of work that I and many people in this room that I've been working with for 30 years have been doing. Maybe it's more of the same, maybe it's winning new allies to the cause. And I think we really, really need to do something. I think if we think of human rights catastrophes in this world today, one of the contenders for the leading human rights catastrophe of the day is the field of international adoption. So I, like all of you in this room, have for the past um, many weeks now been reading and hearing news about the immigrant um, child migrant crisis. We've been hearing the stories of children torn from parents, separated at the border, maybe to be reunited, maybe not. And what I've been struck by um, is the year, near unanimous outrage at the separation of children from their parents. I've been struck by the near unanimous horror that people express at the audios of children crying when they're separated and after they're separated. And I share that outrage. I think what's going on is terrible. But I want to say that I think it's a minor blip compared to what's gone on for 30 years and is going on in today in the world of international adoption. So kids crying because they're separated from parents they're bonded to is terrible. It's traumatic. But those kids, if reunited, as almost all these kids will be, not all, and that's tragic, but most of them will be, those kids are almost all going to be OK because they've bonded with their parents. They've got loving parents, and this is a temporary disruption of parenting. Crying kids tears our hearts out. But what's a lot worse is kids who've learned not to cry. So the common experience of people who have gone into institutions in this world for infants, and there are many, is the horror of the silence, because infants learn not to cry. And they learn not to cry 
because when they cry, nothing happens. No one responds. Um, maybe if they're in a good institution, as one of my children was for some six to eight weeks of his life, uh, every six hours, somebody will come, change a diaper, prop a bottle, and leave. But no one comes when they cry. And anybody who knows children or knows anything about child development knows how damaging that is. Um, because it's part of how children develop, is that they cry, people respond, they learn about connection with human beings. So disruption in parenting is bad, but never to have a parent, never to develop that loving bond. That's extraordinarily more destructive. We've been told that some 2,000 children more, some more, have been separated from their parents, some by now reunited, many others not. Compare that to 10 to 14 million children in institutions worldwide, growing up institutions likely to die or live out their childhood in institutions. 10 to 14 million. Um, oh, I forgot my chart. So this is from the beginning of international adoption until 2004, 60 years, steady rise in adoptions of kids coming into the United States to a total of almost 23,000. Steady, obviously it was bumpy, but essentially steady. And this is from 2004, about a dozen years to date, down by 80%. Now that's almost 20,000 children a year who used to get loving, nurturing homes and now are not, now are doomed to live or die out their lives in institutions, 20,000 a year. So it's a human rights catastrophe and it's got a particular character. It's not like well, war and poverty are man-made disasters, but they seem hard to stop. Um, disease, we could do better. But this is deliberate governmental policy that causes that reduction by 80%. Causes 20,000 kids a year who used to get homes not to get them. It's deliberate policy. So the policy actors... Worldwide, the key actors are organizations that purport to be children's friends. That's part of the challenge in this area is there are a lot of people pretending to be children's friends. So UNICEF, Save the Children, and other alleged child rights organizations are the main actors shutting down international adoption worldwide. The United States plays a major, major part. Our official policy, our Department of State, plays a major part in shutting down international adoption. So, and I can go into more detail on any of this, as can some other people in the audience, in terms of DOS responsibility. I want to talk now, though, about what we might be able to do about this and why we should act. So in terms of why we should act, 
I think the facts are overwhelmingly clear that if you do think, as everybody always says they think, the child best interest should be at least a major principle. Most people say it should be the governing principle in areas like this. If you think that the science, the brain science, the empirical evidence is overwhelmingly clear. It has been for several decades. Everybody has known for decades that institutions are bad for kids. We now have gold standard scientific studies done by the best in the world, Charles Nelson at Harvard University on the medical faculty there with um, fellow scientists doing a gold standard study of children in Romanian institutions with some of them randomly removed, comparing those children to children who aren't removed but controlled. He can tell and show us the brain scans to show that month by month, the children who are kept in the institutions are going to deteriorate physically, mentally, emotionally, as compared to children removed and put into nurturing homes. His studies can show us that there's a window of opportunity somewhere before two years, where if children are removed, some of the damage done can be undone. Not all of it, but some of it. Whereas if you wait till after two years, it cannot be. Um, now, overwhelmingly, what we have are policies, man-made policies, U.S. Department of State, UNICEF, and others, that are not only shutting down international adoption, but are requiring that children be held for three, four, five, seven years. So my children, I was able to adopt at in, as infants, one month and four and a half months of age. That's unheard of in today's world, and yet it is the age at which, if we want children to maximize their chances for normal development, they should be given nurturing homes as early as that, if not earlier. So we also know from the evidence that um, there aren't enough homes in country. Uh, that's the reason there are 10 to 14 million kids in institutions. We know from the evidence that adoption works. Um, the studies of adoption show overwhelmingly that it works really well. Now, there are studies that show that the adopted kid population overall is a troubled population. Yes, it is, because most kids don't get adopted until later in life. But if you look at the relatively small group of studies of early adopted kids, they look basically comparable to the general population in all measures of, of health and mental stability, et cetera, and bonding with parents and, and families. So adoption works, transracial adoption works, international adoption works. There's no evidence whatsoever that placing kids across racial or national lines has any negative impact on children. We know there are some abuses in the adoption world, the international adoption world, some illegalities as there are in every single area of human endeavor. The only area I know where the response to abuses and violations of law is to shut down the institution is adoption. And it's not because the, there are more abuses. It's because of the bias. It's because our people are out there ready to shut it down. So it's really, really useful when you hear of a kidnapped kid because that can be used. So. Um, what to do? Um, 
I'm open to all sorts of other ideas. So working with others in, uh, we've now formed what we call a human rights coalition and we welcome others to join us working with others. We've come up with a couple of ideas, one of which I'll describe to you, but welcome other ideas and happy to sign on. I just think what we need to do is something that's gonna move the ball on this. So, um, Part of what we need to do, and it has inspired sort of two things, one of which is actually litigation, international human rights litigation. Um, the other is legislation, uh, and I'm going to talk about the legislative idea. Part of what we need to do, I think, is to change, change the bias, change the international debate, change the understanding of this issue, because this is not an issue that's going to be won by just rational argument. I mean, we need a movement. We need people to understand the issues differently. We need, we need people to believe what I said at the beginning I believed, which is children should not be seen as property of either birth parents or nations. They should be seen as human beings with human rights of equivalent value to adults. So how do we get that idea across? And how do we use that idea and begin to change minds and begin to change policy? So one idea is to re represent it in this legislation. So we have a bill pending in Congress. We need help. We need support. We need co-sponsors. Um, and um, I forgot another of my props. So if somebody can bring up one of the brochures, if they have it, I want to show that to people. I know I've got it over there, but this will save me time. So we've got a piece of legislation. Thank I'll give it back. Thank you. <laughs> um, we've got a piece of legislation pending in Congress, and we've got some sponsors, but we need more. Um, there's lots of ways to find out about it, and all this information is in this brochure, which I'll tell you more about. But the basic idea of the legislation is to say that the Department of State, which, as I said, is one of the prime actors in shutting down international adoption. Um, the Department of State ought to recognize the principle that children have human rights, just like adults. So the Department of State puts out an annual report on human rights violations. They include unfair incarceration of adults or incarceration of adults in cruel conditions and lots of other things that are comparable to locking up innocent children in institutions when there is no need to. So this bill, the Department of State's human rights reports, annual reports, have never included the deliberate locking of children into institutions and denying them available adoptive homes as a human rights violation. So this bill simply says, in about seven lines of added language, Department of State, you ought to do what you should have been doing all along, which is to recognize that these children have human rights and to deliberately shut them into an institution when they could have an adoptive home is a violation of their human rights. Um, it's triggered enormous opposition from the Department of State. I think clearly, although they've come up with a bunch of garbage reasons, the clear reason is that they do not believe that children should be seen as having this human right. And indeed, those in charge of policy at the Department of State now are seriously opposed to international adoption and have taken a variety of uh, 
methods of shutting it down, including making life really, really difficult for agencies that engage in international adoption. So the essence of the bill is that it requires no new funding, no new bureaucracy, just a change in principle and a recognition by the United States that children have human rights to family. And that denying, deliberate denial of family to children when families available should be seen as a violation of human rights. Now that would be important not only internally in terms of Department of State policy, but it would be enormously important worldwide if the United States were to recognize this principle because it is not recognized by UNICEF, by Save the Children, by the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, which is supposed to enforce the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Those entities are I mean, many people think, I think, that the reason international adoption is being shut down is the countries that used to send a lot of kids are troubled and don't trust us with their children. Well, those countries are being told by UNICEF, by the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, and by our Department of State, they ought to shut down international adoption. They're being told that's the right thing to do. That's the human rights position. Um, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, again, enforcing the Convention on the Rights of the Child, when they get reports from countries that they're sending some significant number of kids out of the country for international adoption, the UN Committee goes back to those countries and says, what's the problem? You're sending too many kids out. That's a violation of their human rights. So the, the idea that we are combating is that the fundamental right of the child is to stay put stay in place, stay in the country of origin. That's the idea that we're combating. Now, um, how to support this? Okay, thank you, Mark. So we have, we're trying to start, if you will, a movement. We want support for this legislation. We want support for other activities that we're engaged in. And we have a legislative website that will tell you specifics about our legislation, invite you to join us, tell you how to contact Congress, congressional representatives, um, give us your name so that we'll be able to contact you and tell you what we're doing and what specific help we want and need. I had um, probably about 75 or 100 of these at the registration desk, and I have more in that suitcase over there, which I will bring up here after I'm finished, maybe before the Q&A even. Um, this will give you uh, several websites to go to. One is just the legislative website. Others are other ways to join us, and it's all pretty self-evident from this, and you can also always email me or email CAP, Child Advocacy Program at Harvard Law School, and how to contact us is on this brochure. So I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll share with me and with others that I'm engaged in this battle with, happily, because it's not just me. Um, I hope you'll share your ideas as to what we should do, and this will also give you that opportunity to communicate with us um, in terms of ideas you have. A final note in terms of action now is um, Department of State personnel. So what the Department of State is doing is not driven by legislation. There's no congressional legislation that is telling DOS to shut down international adoption. It's driven by personnel who've been there for a while. The key person who's still there um, has been there since 2014. And 
One of the things I'm struck by is that this Trump administration, which is so eager to undo all things Obama and all things pre-Trump, for whatever reasons has not touched the Department of State. And a simple change in personnel there would make an enormous difference. So I invite any of you who think they have a way of helping us on that front also to join us. So thank you very much. I want to, I think I've left time for lots of questions. I'm going to go get more questions. I do have some time for questions, uh, five or 10 minutes. I will not try to uh, emulate the virtuosic technique that Rabbi Saperstein had of, of aggregating related questions. And indeed, I, I think I'm going to uh, just um, let uh, the professor handle her own questions. But I might throw out the first one, if that's OK, um, as the prerogative of the moderator, which is um, I expected a little more explanation of the uh, Hague Convention, uh, an international treaty that I often hear uh, mentioned as having affected many nations' behavior. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. There is this Hague Convention on Intercountry Adoption. It uh, was um, passed, ratified by, I mean, for a convention to be effective, countries have to sign on. Various countries signed on, ratified, including the United States, and it most countries involved in international adoption have by now ratified. Um, many people do blame the Hague Convention for the um, sh shutdown and new restrictions on international adoption. I don't actually think that's fair. I think the, the Hague Convention I was very disappointed in. Initially, the Hague Convention started with the idea that it would facilitate international adoption and enable countries to be more cooperative, sending countries, receiving countries, have it all work better, something that would, for example, help solve something of a problem. I had to spend three months in Peru for each of the two adoptions, which was okay for me because I could do it, but probably meant 99% of the people who might want to adopt from Peru could not have done it. That's part of what made me feel that I should get involved in this work and try to get rid of some of these restrictions. Um, so the Hague, initially, the idea was, let's figure out how to have a more facilitative, cooperative, worldwide system. But it got taken up by the anti-adoption bias and fervor. So it ended up being relatively neutral creating some new barriers which are significant. Um, every country has to have a central authority and some countries don't really have the resources to set one up. So there's some problems, some new impediments, some new restrictions. Um, this is why I say almost all adoption law and policy takes this negative, restrictive, what could go wrong form rather than a facilitative form. So Hague turned from being facilitative to somewhat restrictive, but not too terrible. But then you have these policy actors. So the policy actors took the Hague, and for example, with Central and South America, we've had some talk earlier, I think you spoke some, about the, the glories of all the private actors involved in adoption in the United States. So uh, government always gets in the way of adoption. The reason that adoption works when it does internationally is often because there are private actors. So there are people, I know people don't like lawyers. I'm used to that now, even though I go to conferences like this. But you know, lawyers 
have clients who are prospective parents who want to find children, and they tend to put these arrangements together. So, so private adoption, which is never really private, of course, it's always heavily restricted by the state, but private actors were allowed to be involved. And uh, the Hague, because we fought about this issue, did not prevent that. It allowed that. But organizations like UNICEF went to countries in Central and South America and said, now you have to pass legislation to create a central authority. True. Um, and they said, and by the way, the Hague forbids private adoption. So when you do your reform legislation, you're going to have to shut down private adoption. So UNICEF knew perfectly well that that meant shutting down adoption effectively from Central and South America. And that is exactly what happened, that the numbers just plummeted because they shut down private adoption. And then the government takes over. And then all of a sudden, there are no infants being adopted. They're all two, three, five years old from institutions and all the the sort of negative politics of adoption, of adoption take over. Um, so the, I don't think the Hague itself had to be a problem. It has turned out to be a problem because it provided a vehicle for the negative restrictive energy because yes, countries had to pass legislation to create a central authority and then that provided this golden opportunity for the people who wanted to shut it down to shut it down. We only have a few minutes for questions. Um, so I, I am uh, if you'd like to recognize no, questions, I'm okay. Okay. I'm sorry, we only have a few minutes. Thank you. Yeah. Great presentation. I have three concrete ideas. Number one, Senator John McCain, among his children, is a child born from India. There are several um, congressmen and other people who are in a position who really can be advocates. Mm -hmm. um, the movie Lion in which the second child who had serious emotional disturbances in the orphanage and continued to. However, he is now parented in the same way that biological children with serious emotional disturbances are parented. The little couple who adopted both Zoe from India. I think that the use of social media to educate people who are not aware of this really needs to be enhanced. My final comment is this is an administration that wants to keep people born, not born here, out of here. This is, you know, this is where we are right now. And the State Department, there's hardly anybody left. So I think that right now, the use of social media, the political people, who are out there in the same way Hubert Humphrey was so proud of his grandchild mm -hmm. with Down syndrome. I think that's the model that should be followed. Thank you so much. I think we should take more questions and comments and then um, yeah. tell me when we should cut them off and I'll try to deal with and a it, number of them. So and to, to follow the rabbi's rule, if you can make 30 second comments, you go to the front of the line. Uh, who, can, who can make 30 second comments? Uh, the or, man or back there is gonna do yeah. a 30 second intervention. I'm Perry Bider. I spent the first four weeks of my life in the hospital and learned not to cry. Uh, we adopted our son from Guatemala in 2001. Um, I remember watching a documentary about the institutions in Romania, and I was just horrified and, and just very upset. And my concern at the time uh, was that 
the Ceausescu regime seemed to be using these children as money makers, and I worry uh, that uh, rogue elements like that not be allowed to prey on children, separating them from their families when it's not necessary. Next question. Anything? Go ahead over there. Equal time to equal parts of different parts of the room here. Um, I totally agree with you that my name's Ann Common, and I'm a lawyer and a birth mother who placed in a private adoption years and years ago. I would call it surrender. Um, most birth mothers just don't give up their children. It's a difficult, difficult thing. Kids should not be kept in institutions. On the other hand, I think you gloss over the issues that can be there with things like kidnapping and the pain and consequences for birth families who lose their children. There's another question in the back. Uh, let me just, I don't want to take, I'm going to just take some of those and then maybe sure. we'll be able to fit in more. So I want to start with the, the latter because I, I have limited time. I don't mean to gloss over those things. I took my children back to Peru to meet their birth parents. One of the most moving things I've ever experienced is one of my sons meeting a birth mother who thought, who never knew whether he lived or died. And I, I honor that I also, I mean, I honor the pain that goes with giving up children, surrendering children, losing children. Um, I, I also think, though, that, you know, most birth mothers, if their choice, their real choice, and it shouldn't be the only choice, I mean, a better world, birth mothers would give birth to children they could raise and keep. That would be the better world. I would like to work for that world. In this world where there's horrible poverty, where lots of uh, parents cannot raise and keep the children they give birth to, I think, I would like to think most birth mothers would prefer that their children have parents than that they not have parents. And I don't think, you know, there's a lot of talk about choice in the world of, of abortion, there's very little talk about birth mother choice, the choice to surrender, which I think is, and the choice to have your child have a real life. So, you know, I really don't mean to downplay that. I think one of the real issues here is, and if I'm trying to give any, um, if I try to think of a possible good reason that UNICEF could be taking the position it is, I think it's that, um, and sometimes they say this, that you know, we should be working for a world where birth parents can keep their children, where there isn't this horrible divide between rich nations and poor nations. And I agree we should be. I just don't think there's anything inconsistent with, in the meantime, these children who are not going to get homes otherwise, let's try to give them homes. And I actually believe there's no way to measure this with gold standard or other social science, but I do believe that when children are adopted, you get a lot of adoptive parents who never thought anything about the situation in poor birth countries until they adopted, who become aware of that and who do all sorts of things that involve 
you know, giving back, lots of it times it's just money. Um, some, you know, I think we should be encouraging adoptive children, I mean, to feel they've got choices, but one of them would be for them to give back. I mean, one of my kids on his own chose to go back to Peru and work one summer doing community service in, in Peru. I think that, um, I think that when a lot of the reasons there's so few homes in country is that there's a lot of racial discrimination in, in these countries. And I think that when you see, you know, in these countries, for example, South and, you know, Latin America, Peru, people would look at, you know, my Indian American kids, the whites in Peru were just, didn't occur to them that they would adopt that kind of kid. I think when you see, in most countries, Asia, Africa, there's way more bias against adoption in these countries than here. When they see Americans pouring into the country eager to adopt, I think that helps change ideas and attitudes. Now, how do we change the worldwide picture of poverty? That's, you know, that's overwhelming, we need to do it. I do not mean to sort of diminish the pain, and I understand why my comments could sound like that. Um, so I hope that's enough of an answer. In terms of Romania, I think I just want to mention that um, in terms of uh, this debate and how the human rights issues play out and why we think it's so important to change the human rights debate, Part of why Romania passed, a large part of why they passed the law that says no international adoption whatsoever except by grandparents is because the people in charge of the European Union at the time were advising the European Union that they should tell Romania, which they did, that they could, were only going to be able to join the European Union if they agreed to shut down international adoption because the people advising the EU said it's the inherent human right of the child to stay in the country of origin. So that's how Romania got shut down. And indeed, our other initiative on this front that I said we had two going on this human rights front. The other initiative um, is in the human, International Human Rights Litigation Project is to try to challenge the total shutdown in Romania and you know, in part because of the absolute quality of the shutdown um, and in part because of the, if you will, important symbolism of the reason Romania shut down. In terms of Guatemala, I just want to say, you know, and yes, the issue of, you know, is there kidnapping and is it terrible or is there baby buying? I mean, Guatemala was shut down supposedly because there was evidence, and I'm sure it's true, that some number, and maybe it was a lot, of birth mothers got some money in exchange for surrendering their children to foster care. Now, it did happen. I, I feel, and this is taking on you know, dangerous territory, okay. I think baby buying is bad, and I think there should be laws against it. But I am astonished that people never weigh the evils of some women who are desperately poor getting some money, maybe $50, maybe 1000 who were probably almost certainly going to surrender the child anyway because they can't afford to raise the child. So that evil is counted as the only evil that matters. So what happened in Guatemala, Guatemala was a country from which some 5,000 kids were coming into this country, many of them 
as healthy infants because they were surrendered by birth parents to foster care. So they didn't get raised in the institutions and they were freed up for adoption at ages like three and five months. So it was a, a fantastic success in my view. But yes, some number of birth parents got money. So weigh the evils, 5,000 kids a year now on the streets per year or raised in institutions or we manage to tell these birth mothers that, you know, nope, they're not gonna get money when they surrender the child. So I think we should enforce the laws against, you know, baby selling, but we shouldn't shut down international adoption because of that breach of a law. We should recognize the evils on the other side when you shut down international adoption. Uh, we are now out of time. Please join me in thanking our keynote speaker. Thank you. Um,